Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bikini Podcast. This is episode number 38 and today we're going to be talking about female reproductive health and we have two guests on the show today and the first, Emily Zillick, Ivory Pro League judge. Welcome back, Emily, and thank you for coming on. Thanks, Troy. It's good to be back. That's um, great. I also want to pass on a big thank you to all the listeners from our previous podcast. It was extremely overwhelming to hear the number of responses that we did receive post that interview. Women who are taking their reproductive health seriously, who let us know that post that interview, they'd booked an appointment with their gynecologist, that they booked in an appointment with their GP to get a referral to a gynecologist or had booked in for a pap smear. So that was really great to hear. But what it also, um, I guess, brought out is the fact that we have so many female athletes that are wanting to learn a little bit more about a healthy reproductive system and a healthy endocrine system, and that there's a huge gap in terms of providing education and forwarding this knowledge onto our female athletes in the industry. So with that in mind, um, we do have a special guest with us today, and it's my great pleasure to introduce our listeners to Dr. Chris Russell. And Dr. Chris Russell began his training as a private obstetrician and gynecologist in 2004 at the Box Hill Hospital. It has since taken him to Melbourne's finest um, women's hospitals with his principal training being done at the Mercy Hospital for women here in Heidelberg. From advanced laparoscopic surgery, tailored fertility plans and IVF through to personalized antenatal care and delivery. Chris provides the high-level expertise patients need at each step along the way. Since then, he has undertaken advanced fellowships in fertility and reproductive laparoscopic surgery at the Monash Medical Centre and the Mercy Hospital for Women, as well as Monash IVF. He has also completed a Master of Reproductive Medicine and has authored book chapters and research publications related to IVF treatment. Now, Chris currently works as a consultant at Mercy Hospital Reproductive Biology Unit and is a lecturer at the University of Melbourne. He is also the clinical director at Newline IBF. Chris has a special interest in gynecological issues that affect elite sports women and is associated with multiple AFLW clubs. Welcome, Dr. Chris. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Emily, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, thank you to you and Troy for the invitation. That's a really impressive introduction. <laughs> I, I was listening to it go on and on and on and I thought, You've, uh, you've, <laughs> perhaps. Um, I, I feel it's not a particularly impressive career, but it did. Uh, it did uh, manage to take you quite a while to get through it all. No, it is. It's very impressive, and again, we feel very privileged um, to have you on the show today. I'm going to start by asking you a very obvious question. Um, women, healthy women, get their periods once every month. It's something that we used to and become used to all our lives, but. Have many of us actually given much thought as to, you know, what purpose does it serve? So I ask you as a specialist, what is a menstrual cycle? That's a very good question. And uh, I hope you've got a little while for me to go through that. Um, <laughs> so a, a menstrual cycle, I think the, the, central, uh, the central requirement for a menstrual cycle is ovulation. So ovulation is, uh, is when a woman's ovary releases an egg and uh, the reason the woman releases an egg is that uh, from an evolutionary point of view, uh, she is hoping to become pregnant as a result of releasing that egg. And as a result, um, 
there's a there's a period that there's a period of time that leads up to the release of the egg, and we call that the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle, or the phase where a follicle is developing uh, in preparation for the release of the egg, and then uh, there's ovulation itself which is then followed by what we call a luteal phase, which is the phase where the uterus prepares itself for implantation of a, uh, of a fertilized egg. Now, there's a couple of possibilities. Uh, well, there's two possibilities. One is that egg gets fertilized and she might become pregnant. The other possibility, which happens the majority of the time for women uh, during their reproductive careers, uh, the majority of the time she doesn't get pregnant. And uh, there's a whole uh, range of hormonal changes that occur in response to all of these things. And that's what leads to her having a period about two weeks, uh, usually two weeks after ovulation. Um, we expect a period if that woman's not pregnant. So uh, I guess there's a few things to think about with a menstrual cycle. There's, there's what's going on uh, uh, within the ovary and uh, what's and there's a what we call a hormonal cycle and the changes to hormones that uh, a woman experiences in her body and there's also the, uh, the the menstrual cycle or what's happening with the lining of her uterus at the time okay and you, you touched on hormones there so what are some of the female hormones associated with our reproductive systems yeah so um, the predominant uh, uh, hormones released from the woman's ovary are estrogen and progesterone. And they're probably the most important in terms of uh, preparing for the impending pregnancy. But the, uh, the, the ovary does deal with other hormones well as well, and it does release testosterone, uh, which is important uh, in functioning for females. And uh, there's there's an endless number of other hormones that have that play minor but important kind of interconnecting roles that uh, that ensure that the function of the ovary and release of the egg occurs. To be able to release an egg, there are two other hormones that are absolutely crucial, and they are called FSH and LH. And uh, FSH uh, is follicle stimulating hormone. It's released from the pituitary gland at the base of the woman's brain and it travels through the blood to the ovary and essentially the role of FSH is to tell the ovary to get an egg ready for release and um, the other hormone LH is uh, also released from the pituitary gland and that travels through the bloodstream to the ovary and it's important in uh, in maintaining hormone levels within the ovary in the lead up to ovulation. And LH is really important as well because it's the hormone that, that surges uh, quite dramatically uh, in, terms of its, in terms of its level. So it surges to quite a high level within the bloodstream and that's the, uh, the signal to the ovary that it's time to release the egg. Now you did, um, you have touched on ovulation as being a primary feature of yeah. um, the cycle. Now, I know the answer to this question because of my own personal experience, but does every woman ovulate on day 14? No. And uh, there's a lot of variability in, in when a woman will ovulate. When I was sort of mentioning before that there's two parts of the, uh, the menstrual cycle being the follicular phase, which is the development of the egg, and then the luteal phase, which is the preparation for pregnancy that occurs after ovulation, what we typically do see is that the length of the luteal phase from ovulation to period is generally much the same in all women. It tends to be around about 12 to, 14, 12 to 16 days with, a, with an average of about 14. 
Um, whereas the follicular phase can be quite variable. So I sometimes uh, see women and uh, one of the questions I ask every woman when I meet them, whether they're there because they've got issues with their, with their period, whether it be pain or, or, or that type of thing, or indeed whether they're wanting to have a baby, or I do sometimes just see women who are worried that their period is not what they expect in terms of regularity. One of the things I'm always asking is what is the length of your menstrual cycle? And um, the, the things that I'm looking out for is what is, is there a lot of variability from month to month? Because some women do have a lot of variability. They say sometimes it's 28 days, sometimes it's 32, sometimes it's 26. So you do see some irregularity in the length and that's quite, that's quite okay. Um, and you also see that even if uh, women do have a regular period and it start and it comes at the same, you know, the same, the same interval each time, um, we can see anything between 25 and 35 would be considered quite normal. So there's a huge, there's a huge variance there. There's a huge variance. In fact, one of the things that I've, I've noticed lately is that um, whenever I ask a woman about the length of her menstrual cycle, I very rarely get a straight answer straight away. <laughs> even though it's something that they've come to see me about that, that what everyone always does is they reach for their mobile phone and say, let me check my app for you. And yeah. uh, it's just interesting. That's uh, that's something that's come up and is really, really uh, it's mainstream over the last two or three years that, uh, that women are tracking their cycles with, uh, with apps and things. Yeah. Now there'd be no doubt um, over the years that you have had a number of women come to you with, hormone imbalances. What yeah. are some of the more obvious and common signs that a woman is suffering from a hormone imbalance? Yeah. The difficulty with, with, um, with hormonal imbalances is that those, those hormones I mentioned before in terms of FSH levels, LH levels, estrogen levels and progesterone levels, they all vary incredibly dramatically over the course of the cycle. So that if we sort of, uh, if I just said to a woman I was seeing today, let's check your hormone levels, let's check FSH, LH, estradiol and progesterone, I'm going to get dramatically different results for her today compared to what I will get tomorrow versus next week. And even I'll get different results if I did it over the course of five or 10 minutes, because uh, some of the releases of these hormones are pulsatile in, in that they they they're not sort of released constantly. They're, they're constantly going up and, and, you know, sort of peaks and troughs. Um, so, so the difficulty with hormonal imbalance is, is that the actual, it's probably more the effect rather than the cause that's important. So um, if you had to say to me, how do you define a hormonal imbalance? I think that's, that's an incredibly difficult thing to say for the reasons I've just mentioned, it just does vary so much. So the more pertinent question, which is I think what you were sort of suggesting is what are the common symptoms? Because if you've got a hormonal imbalance, but no symptoms, does it even matter? Um, or does that just mean you don't actually have a hormonal imbalance? Whereas if you've got symptoms of hormonal, hormonal imbalance, but we check your blood tests and they all seem normal enough for where you are in your menstrual cycle. What does that mean? So it really is a symptom issue rather than an absolute level issue. Um, but what symptoms, I mean, some women get, get no symptoms with, with fluctuations in hormones and that's really important. Um, so it's not always a problem, but the common things we see are changes in the woman's mood. So 
She might find that she's more depressed or more anxious or more irritable at certain stages of her cycle. Uh, she, and uh, the other key ones would probably be abdominal distension and bloating. So that's a really common, uh, common symptom for women in that she says, oh, you know, from the time of ovulation to when I get my period, I find I'm really bloated, I retain fluid, I can't get my genes done up. Um, and you know, I seem to gain two kilos. And, uh, so that seems to be, be a common complaint. And the other would be pain. So, um, whether that's, uh, pain like cramps or just pelvic pain in general, or sometimes even pain that seems to be bowel related. So I think, you know, often these often, uh, often reproductive hormones can affect bowel function and, and change the way uh, your bowels work. So that probably encapsulates most of the symptoms I, I hear about. What do you think is the number one problem when it comes to symptoms and to identifying if you do have a healthy reproductive system? Yep. Well, I, I think the, the difficulty is that some women with healthy reproductive systems from the point of view that they ovulate reliably, they seem to have normal hormone levels. Um, I think you can have a healthy reproductive system, but still have symptoms. So, um, you know, I do see some women who see me cause they're concerned about what will be, what will be the reproductive implications for me, given the symptoms I have at the moment. And it's really hard to predict what those outcomes are going to be. What we would usually do is say, well, are you ovulating reliably? Do you have good ovarian reserve? Uh, which we haven't touched on yet, but uh, is something that'll be important to talk about. And if you have good ovarian reserve and, um, and you're ovulating, um, then as far as we can predict, your reproductive outcomes are okay at the moment. The next thing is, how does that predict the future? And that's the really difficult thing because often you don't know how uh, a woman's chances of having a baby until she actually tries. And... Um, yeah, that, that manifests its way in lots of, in lots of situations. Um, I see some women who have been diagnosed with endometriosis and for some reason, someone somewhere has told them, and I kid you not, women get told this, uh, you'll never have a baby because you've got endometriosis. It's like, well, I just can't Heard believe anyone could, yeah, I can't believe anyone would say that to a young woman, uh, someone who's 18 years old, and has never tried to have a baby, how can you predict that she can't have a baby? It's just ridiculous and absurd and terrible, all rolled up into one. Um, so it's, it's, it's very hard to predict when women actually have problems with their reproductive system, whether that will actually manifest itself as difficulty having a baby. So therefore, it's even, it, it's also at the other end of the scale in women who are completely fine, completely healthy, completely free of system of symptoms. No one can predict what issues she might have in having a baby as well uh, for a whole range of reasons. So um, out of all that, probably the key questions for women who are interested in having a baby and want to know what their chances are or whether they're going to have difficulty is going to be centered around one, do you ovulate? What's your ovarian reserve like? And how old will you be when you actually start trying to have a baby? They're probably the three key questions. 
if we can continue that conversation on AMH and I yeah. relate to my own personal experience when I first had mine tested and yeah. the general practitioner and got my results and was told you have a really low ovarian reserve. And I went into panic mode. I sure. doctor Googled, I found Dr. Chris and I was walking into your consulting room that day convinced that we would have to start IVF because that's what Google told me that we needed to do. And that's mm. what our general practitioner said that we'd most likely need. Perhaps we can elaborate a little bit more on, you know, what, how do we test number one? How do we test AMH levels? And what are some yep. of the factors that influence AMH? Yep, sure. So uh, AMH is one of the tests we have at our disposal to assess a woman's ovarian reserve. So just to explain ovarian reserve, uh, perhaps we'll go back to basics a little bit. And um, men and women are completely different in terms of their strategies, uh, reproductive strategies. So whereas men uh, start making sperm at puberty and continue to make sperm for most of their life, although you know, quality deteriorates with time, um, women have a different approach and that's that uh, a woman's eggs are formed before she's even born. In fact, it's one of the very first things that takes place during embryonic development. So just after the uh, fertilization of the sperm and the egg, one of the earliest things that takes place is that a woman's eggs are formed and, and, uh, and, they're, and that takes place within her ovaries at the time. And uh, never again does she ever make any more eggs for the remainder of her life. And the eggs are kind of suspended in an immature state within her ovaries. And uh, the, the, what, what leads to puberty is as some of those eggs start to become, sort of come out of their dormancy. And uh, as the eggs come out of, start to come out of dormancy, they start releasing estrogen and that leads to uh, pubertal development and, uh, and that type of thing. Um, and then what will happen is when uh, the young woman's uh, menstrual cycle starts, that means that she's released an egg for the first time. So what will happen is that, just going back a step, you know, all of those eggs are made in utero before she's born. They don't uh, have any activity at all until uh, she reaches puberty. They uh, get released at a rate of one per month. So every time a woman ovulates, she generally releases, releases only one egg. Some women release two, and that's why some, some women naturally get twins. Um, so if you sort of count, you know, from 13 to, uh, to 50, how many, how many months is that? I, I can't add that up in my head right at the moment. But it's, uh, it's a fraction of the eggs that uh, the woman has ever made. The remainder sort of go into a state of maturity, um, which, which means they could be the egg that's released but the body selects one of those eggs and one only out of the bank that's available. And the ones that don't get picked to be released, they tend to get into a state of post-maturity and basically die within the ovary because they're not used in the, in the right time frame. So um, I've just sort of very wordily uh, explained that, you know, one, women don't make more eggs they are used by ovulation and they also just deplete with time. So why, what, what ovarian reserve is doing is getting a snapshot in time and trying to predict how many eggs are in that woman's ovaries. So normally the situation we're doing that is, is a woman is perhaps 25 or 30 or 35 and 
is either planning to have a baby at some stage in the future or is already trying. And part of the assessment is to think, well, does she have a good number of eggs available to us? Because to have a good chance of getting a pregnancy, we want lots of eggs to be available over a decent amount of time so that we can get lots and lots of chances for that pregnancy to occur. So um, the way we, so that's what ovarian reserve is, a snapshot of what are, what's the egg bank in your ovaries at that particular time. So one of the tests that we uh, use to do that, and there is a number of tests that we probably should discuss, one of them is the AMH level. Now AMH is called anti-malarian hormone, and uh, it's released by follicles within the ovary. So what a follicle is, is a little sack of fluid within the ovary that contains an egg. And uh, follicles can be at a couple of stages of development. And we generally call them uh, preantral follicles and antral follicles. So preantral follicles are very small. They measure about one to two millimeters in size within the woman's ovaries. And those preantral follicles release uh, AMH, anti-malarian hormone, into the woman's bloodstream. We don't know quite what the function of that is or why it's done, but uh, we know it happens. And so what an AMH level does is it releases that level in the woman's blood. And from that, we can sort of plot it on a chart and see where she sits compared to other women of a similar age. And if you've got a very high AMH level, that means you've got lots of eggs. Uh, if you've got a very low, uh, well, it means you've got lots of preantral follicles. Uh, if you've got low AMH level, it means you've got low numbers of preantral follicles. And we think the number of preantral follicles is very reflective of the number of eggs remaining within the ovary that haven't reached that stage of development yet. And is it true that a woman who suffers from polycystic ovary syndrome, and we can, um, I guess, this question can lead into a further discussion around PCOS, could they potentially have a reading of a high AMH? Absolutely, they can. And that's uh, probably the most common reason for having a very high AMH level. So again, women with polycystic ovary syndrome, and, and certainly not, not every woman with PCOS, because it is a very, very broad um, spectrum of conditions that, that is, is called PCOS. However, one of the hallmarks is that uh, based, you know, as you can uh, sort of understand from the name, polycystic ovaries means lots of lots of cysts within the ovary or and the term cyst and follicle is kind of interchangeable in this situation so lots of follicles within their ovaries and traditionally that's been because we've been able to look at their ovaries on ultrasound and we've seen not not so much the preantral follicles but the antral follicles that uh, that i was mentioning before they're just a little bit more mature than the preantral follicles so women with polycystic ovaries tend to have more antral follicles by definition and women with lots of antral follicles also have a lot of preantral follicles. So therefore, uh, they'll have high AMH levels. Um, the interesting thing about polycystic ovaries is that women with PCOS or, or, or just the ultrasound finding of polycystic ovaries um, have something of a reproductive advantage in that they do have lots of eggs within their ovaries, which... Um, at times is, is of great advantage, but it also can be quite frustrating because one of the other hallmark of polycystic ovary syndrome is that they don't ovulate very reliably. And it's because of imbalances in the hormones within the ovaries and the signaling just can't, they, the signaling, the hormonal signaling with the ovaries just isn't right. And as a result, an egg ultimately uh, is not released. 
and therefore ovulation doesn't occur. So that's the issue with, with PCOS. But one of the nice things is they do have plenty of eggs. How do you balance someone that doesn't have the correct hormonal profile with PCOS? Um, so I guess with PCOS, the, the hormonal issues that they uh, experience are different to what I was talking about earlier. And so it's probably important to highlight that. And generally what we find is women with PCOS, uh, one of the hallmark features is that they have increased secretion of testosterone from their ovaries. And um, testosterone levels at the right level of, is really important for ovulation. So you, you know, some people have looked at you know, various treatments in adding testosterone to, to people's fertility treatment to try and improve quality of eggs and things like that. So we know that it's important to have some testosterone for egg release and egg development. Uh, but with PCOS, there's often too much testosterone around and that's what leads to the inability of the ovary to release the egg. But it also releases, it can also lead to other side effects that uh, the woman experiences. And these are a problem. This is probably one situation where you can diagnose a hormonal imbalance because you can do testosterone levels um, and in particular free testosterone levels. So the, the unbound type is really important. Um, and uh, the, the symptoms that women often experience are changes to their skin predominantly. So increase in acne, increase in hair growth, uh, occasionally you can get uh, male pattern changes to, to, to hair. Um, so male pattern balding, but that's very, very uncommon with, um, with PCOS. And uh, if we do see a woman with, with male pattern changes to their hair, we'd start thinking, oh, maybe there's a, a, a testosterone secreting tumor somewhere else uh, and that it's not related to PCOS. Um, similarly, the other red flag for us in terms of testosterone levels is probably voice deepening as well. It's very unusual for that to happen with, uh, with PCOS. It's normally a marker that something else is going on. That's given our listeners a really good understanding of um, PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome. Mm. Um, another disease that many of our female athletes um, have asked to learn a little bit more about is endometriosis. Yeah. Able to give explanation as to you know, what is endometriosis, um, how is it diagnosed and what are some of the signs and symptoms that a female should look out for? Sure. So um, endometriosis itself is a condition uh, where the lining of the uterus, which we call the endometrium, uh, grows somewhere that it shouldn't. And that can, uh, so the, the endometrial tissue can grow on the outside of the uterus. It can grow around the ovaries. It can grow on any tissue in the pelvis at all. It can grow and attach itself to bowel. It can grow and attach itself to the outside of the bladder. Um, it's even possible to find it in the upper abdomen. So this endometrial tissue can find itself in all sorts of places. Um, it probably occurs in about 30% of women who are trying to have a baby, whether they have symptoms or not. And I'll get to the symptoms in a minute. So it is relatively common. Um, and the reason, and, and what happens to that endometrial tissue is that it responds to the woman's hormone fluctuations in exact, exactly the same way as her endometrial lining does. So in that, uh, we were sort of talking about the follicular phase of the cycle and the luteal phase uh, the, you know, from ovulation onwards. So what happens is we see 
growth in the uh, endometrial tissue or the endometriosis, as we call it when it's on the outside. Um, so the endometriosis grows. And if the woman doesn't conceive and become pregnant that month, uh, just like the endometrial lining starts to shrink uh, and release cytokines and, and bleed, the endometriosis does the exact same thing. So um, in some women, it causes no symptoms at all, which is interesting. There are some women who have uh, severe symptoms from very small, physical de physically small deposits of endometriosis. Um, the reason we think it causes pain is that if the endometriosis is sitting next to nerve endings, it releases inflammatory cytokines, it bleeds, and that can excite the nerve endings and cause pain. So the, the number one symptom is, is probably pain. And the most common time to have pain is in the lead up to the woman's period and also during the period. The other symptom we commonly see endometriosis is just difficulty getting pregnant. So we do find, uh, like I mentioned, we think the rate of endometriosis is about 30% in the population of women trying to have a baby. That's probably a slight over-representation of what we would see in, across all women. Um, so, uh, but we do see it much more commonly in women trying, uh, trying to get pregnant. You mentioned asymptomatic. How would you identify or work with someone that is asymptomatic to this? So I guess I'm talking about asymptomatic from the, from the pain point of view. So um, we might find, so because the, the, I guess it goes to the, the, one of Emily's other questions, which is how is it diagnosed? And there's a couple of ways, the, 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 you know, the best for want of a better word, the best way to identify endometriosis is a laparoscopy. So that's an operation where we put a camera through the woman's belly button and and focus down uh, into her pelvis at the air, at the tissues around her uterus, fallopian tubes and ovaries, and, and we can see the endometriosis that way. Best in inverted commas, commas because it's, you, you can't really miss endometriosis by doing a laparoscopy. Um, the difficulty with a laparoscopy is an invasive procedure, it's an operation, you've got to have an anaesthetic, there are risks, you need time off work. So from that point of view, it's not, not necessarily uh, a great thing to do. Um, the other tools we have available to us are ultrasounds. So some women have detailed ultrasounds of their pelvis. Uh, and in some circumstances, but certainly not all, you can see endometriosis on, uh, on the ultrasound. So I guess going back to that question, how would you know you've got, endo you've got endometriosis if you, uh, if you have no symptoms? Well, women have ultrasounds for all sorts of reasons. It might be, again, uh, that she's trying to have a baby or uh, all that type of thing, or she wants to check her ovarian reserve and they have a look and they say, oh, look, there's some markers of endometriosis there. The more common thing would be uh, having a laparoscopy for some other reason, whether that's uh, perhaps they've had an ovarian cyst diagnosed on ultrasound that needs to be removed, or more commonly, again, they've been trying for a baby for a period of time. And whilst there's no pain symptoms there, uh, we want to check the pelvis for blockages in her fallopian tube, for instance, uh, we go in and we find the endometriosis is there. Now, Chris, for many of our listeners who are athletes um, competing or whether it's for their first competition or whether they've been competitors for quite some time, they have dieted for a long period of time, many of them in um, a calorie deficit. Their training routine is quite strenuous, um, often training more than, more than once a day that can lead to um, them no longer getting a period, uh, whether it's for a couple of months or for an extended period of time. 
for our listeners, um, are you able to just explain the importance of making sure that a female does have a regular period and some of the complications that may occur if a female um, has an absent period for an extended period of time? Yeah. So I think whenever a woman has a, has a, has a, I'm trying not to use the word of word period for period of time. Uh, it gets a little <laughs> bit confusing, but um, if there's a period of time where a woman doesn't have a period, it's really important that she looks into why that is the case. And, and I think that's probably where athletes perhaps don't take care of themselves in the way they should, because they say, look, I am training more than usual. My, uh, my BMI is down. My body fat percentage is down. That's why I'm not getting a period. But there can be other reasons as well. And it might be, it, it might be a sign of PCOS. Admittedly, it's more common to see PCOS cause a lack of periods with weight gain rather than weight loss, but, but, um, but it's, it's, it's possible. The other is that you can have other hormonal issues that are causing the lack of period. So anyone without a period, we don't, autom- you know, even in the situation uh, different to what we're talking about now, but if we were wanting to diagnose PCOS in a woman, we always check thyroid levels first. We always check prolactin levels first because they're, they're sort of conditions that have completely different treatments, but can masquerade as PCOS by causing similar symptoms. So I think the same thing stands for women who are exercising and training. Uh, if you're not getting a period, it's important to look at why, because like I mentioned, could be PCOS that has different uh, treatment and different implications. Then uh, if it's from training, similarly, you need to know what your thyroid levels are like. You need to know what your prolactin levels like. Maybe you've got a pituitary t- tumor releasing prolactin that's uh, has, has caused the issue. So it's really important to look into it. Um, having said all that, the most common reason is that the woman's pituitary has decided, it doesn't decide, it doesn't have conscious thought, but um, the, uh, the pituitary has stopped releasing hormones to stimulate the ovary. And evolution-wise, the reason it's doing that, it's saying, look, there's just, you just don't have enough energy surplus at the moment for a pregnancy. So therefore, I'm going to shut down ovulation and we're not going to get pregnant at the moment because the outcome of that pregnancy is probably not going to be good for the woman and it may not be good for the baby either. So that's kind of what's happening when, uh, when intense exercise occurs. And what, how, that, how that manifests itself in terms of hormone levels is that if, we do, uh, if I do blood tests on women in that situation, I'm always checking those four really important female hormones uh, and a fifth really important one, which is the which is HCG to make sure she's not pregnant because that's always uh, important to know about. But we check FSH levels, so follicle stimulating hormone, LH levels, uh, we check estradiol and we check progesterone. And what we typically find if it is the, uh, the training that's doing it, we find that the FSH levels are relatively low. We find that the LH levels are very low we find that estrogen is at the menop- is in the menopausal range, so basically undetectable, and progesterone is very low as well. Uh, I mean, progesterone is is often low; it it really goes up following ovulation. Uh, so having a low progesterone is not such a big deal, but having very low estrogen levels can be. And um, we know, for instance, that uh, women have much lower rates of cardiovascular disease before menopause, and that has a lot to do with estrogen. And nice natural estrogen levels 
are protective of cardiovascular disease. So what they do, they, they reduce plaque formation in your blood vessels and it's plaque formation that ultimately leads to things like heart attack and stroke. So that's why women are at an advantage over men uh, pre-menopause in terms of rates of those things. So having no estrogen around can lead to issues with, with cardiovascular health. Most of your uh, listeners are probably familiar with the effect of estrogen on bone strength. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a two-edged sword because on one hand, low estrogen might lead to a lack of bone strength. The fact is these athletes are generally doing lots of weight-bearing exercise anyway, so their bone strength is probably going to be maintained. So, you know, in, in some ways, a lot of athletes are reassured by that, but perhaps they don't think about the effects on their cardiovascular system. What else were you asking, Emily? There's some <laughs> other parts to that question. That's a really good lead-in to uh, uh, quite an honest and transparent discussion we'll have around the usage of, you know, performance-enhancing drugs um, by female athletes across all yeah. categories. Troy is probably best place to to lead that discussion given his expertise and the number of female athletes he has coached over the years. Um, Troy has also um, created a lot of awareness around what we've seen is the abuse of uh, T3 as a, a fat loss supplement um, during someone's competition prep. Um, you know, we have concerns about that and we're not in any way, you know, health specialists or reproductive specialists. Um, for our athletes who may be taking or considering taking T3, what are some of the potential consequences or repercussions of using T3 when you actually, in fact, don't have a thyroid imbalance? Yeah. So I think, um, and I guess for, for taking uh, T th supplemental T3, the, I imagine the whole aim of that situation is to get your the thyroid hormone levels in your body to a higher level than your body would usually maintain and so basic so so what what the athletes doing in that situation is 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 making themselves giving themselves hypothyroidism so uh hypothyroidism is a is a medical condition we sometimes see uh in people um, there can be a range of reasons why that might happen. It can be because they've got a tumour in their thyroid gland. It can be because their, their immune system is stimulating the thyroid to release that thyroid hormone. So we would expect that people taking large amounts of uh, thyroid hormone would, would uh, experience similar effects to people who uh, have hypothyroidism as a medical condition. And, and, and thyroid hormone... Is, is used to increase your metabolic rate. And it generally speeds up functioning of most of the tissues within the body. So for instance, we normally see uh, people with um, a higher heart rate. That can, that can lead literally to a tachycardia. So you know, heart rate above 100, it can read, lead to arrhythmias within the heart, which um, it, can, it can lead to things like atrial fibrillation, which is quite a dangerous um, heart arrhythmia that can lead to clot formation within the heart and strokes and heart attacks and things like that. So um, it's possible that that could happen as a result of uh, thyroid supplementation. Certainly having very high levels of thyroid hormone will affect the functioning 
of uh, the pituitary gland. So you might remember the pituitary gland is what releases FSH and releases LH and, and leads to ovulation. So it would uh, one of the, um, so certainly we have women presenting with infertility as a result of high thyroid hormone levels, you know, in the, you know, when it's caused by a medical condition. Um, so I would expect that that would happen also with a uh, high intake of thyroid. What I'm not sure of and is, is, you know, in some circumstances, if you, um, because when, when you take thyroid hormone, your, your thyroid is going to lower its own endogenous production. So your body recognizes that if you take a tablet, it doesn't know whether the thyroid hormone in your bloodstream is from the thyroid or not. So it assumes that your thyroid is making more. So, uh, so your body counters that by reducing production in the thyroid gland. You then take more th uh, thyroid hormone and your thyroid will make less again. You take more again, your thyroid will keep making less until it's making none at all. And I guess what we don't know is what are the long-term consequences of that happening? Is there going to be irreversible damage to the thyroid gland and to the signaling system between the pituitary and the thyroid? That's certainly possible. We do see um, irreversible damage to the signaling system in, uh, and, and we, we didn't quite get to discuss this before, but certainly in women who um, have lack of periods from training, if it is done for a, a sustained period of time, it does mean that when, they, when the woman recovers, it may be that her period never restarts because the pituitary gland has, has undergone irreversible damage and no longer sends those FSH and LH signals to the ovary. So we, we know that can happen. Uh, we know that that happens in men as well who, who use testosterone, that the signaling between the pituitary gland and the testicle can, can shut down permanently. So I can't see why that wouldn't also be the case with thyroid gland. And I think what we've seen as well over time is this um, misconception that athletes have. They might have a, a male um, a partner or a, a male co-athlete who has gone through a cycle of performance-enhancing drugs and done then a post-cycle treatment and used HCG in order to amp up and boost up his sperm production again. Yeah. For listeners, I don't think they're really aware that once a lot of the damage is done to the female reproductive system, it's in fact irreversible. Yep. And look, um, the... Yeah, I mean, that, that signalling system is really important to, to lead to, to natural ovulation. And we do see a lot of situations where natural ovulation is no longer possible. Luckily, it doesn't seem to affect, uh, it doesn't seem to accelerate the loss of eggs. So usually we can um, take over control of the woman's ovaries by using uh, injections of, of FSH and HCG and things like that. And typically in women, it usually works. Uh, it's a little bit different to men because sometimes we find that giving them HCG injections to promote spermatogenesis or, or, or sperm production, sometimes there is irreversible testicular damage uh, that can't be overcome. Um, it doesn't seem to be as common in women I'm not sure whether that's just a, 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 you know, is that a magnitude issue? Uh, do we just not see enough women who've, who've used these, these drugs to truly know what the effect is? 
And, and I think deep down, we, we don't really know. Uh, so it's, it's possible it couldn't be worse than we realise. Um, but, but it tends to be that we generally can get ovulation to occur. But it is a hassle as well. And, um, you know, compared, you know, you, you mentioned your concerns, Emily, that, that you thought you might need IVF and things like that. And the reason that's a concern is that it's, you know, even ovulation induction treatment with, with injections has its issues. It's quite time consuming. Um, it requires it requires a lot of surveillance with a doctor. It, it requires very specialised oversight with a fertility specialist. It's not cheap. The injections are expensive. The rate of twin pregnancies is much higher when uh, we're using injections because whilst we can get you to ovulate, the trick is getting you to release one egg and therefore only having one baby. One of the issues with using uh, injections is that you know, anyone can get eggs to develop, but what if it's two or three or four? Uh, the rate of multiple birth is going to be much higher. And, um, you know, equally, you know, I have patients say, oh, two babies, wouldn't that be great? Um, get it all over and done with. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, <laughs> One's enough, and and I think you realise that now that socially it's it's quite difficult, but it's also a much more complicated pregnancy. Uh, the thing that that normally talks most of my patients, because I, I do have a lot of patients say, "Oh, I'd really like twins. I wouldn't mind if that happened." The thing that talks them out of it each and every time is when I talk about the rate of disability in the children, and uh, the rate of cerebral palsy. So cerebral palsy is irreversible brain damage as a result of lack of oxygen during the pregnancy or during delivery. And the chance of that happening when there is one baby inside is about one, we normally say two in a thousand. So one in 500 chance with twins, it's about eight in a thousand. So four times as likely. And with triplets about 30 in 1000, it's about 15 times as likely. And, and when I talk about that with most couples uh, and, and most women, they lose interest in twins and triplets pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, we, you know, I've heard over time being involved in the sport that young women and the women who are participating are getting younger and younger in age. They're not necessarily giving themselves enough time to mature naturally as, as athletes. They have easy access to performance enhancing drugs um, so they have a, a mindset they're completely focused and engrossed in achieving the goals that they've set for themselves in the sport that they have transitioned to this mindset that well i'll deal with any consequences later on and there's the option potentially of ivf and troy and i discussed this in great detail during our last podcast ivf is expensive mm. and it's not something that you should be using as an option in order for you to purely fulfill a what is you know essentially an expensive hobby and that's what bodybuilding is it's wonderful sport but it's time consuming and it's a hobby that it will eventually come to an end so for you to be quite negligent towards what you're consuming over the years with the assumption that IVF is going to save you um, is quite concerning yep and I think the uh, the other message amongst all that is is delaying yeah the probably the biggest thing that will have an impact on your chance of having a baby is when you start trying good point and um and i i think that's probably something that athletes i'm not sure that they consider it 
as as thoroughly as they should. And my my little rule of thumb is that uh, when women talk to me about when they should start trying for a family, is firstly to say, well, how many babies do you want? And uh, think about that. Think about how far apart you want them to be. Because if you want three that are two years apart, that's going to take at least four years. And and uh, we don't know how long it's going to take for you to get your first. You probably want your last baby born before 35 to give yourself the best chance of achieving that desired family size. So, and I, I think when I talk about those those questions, it probably alarms a lot of women because they think, oh, I want two or three um, and I want them two years apart, don't want them too close. What? I've got to have them be- before 35. Well, <laughs> I'm already I'm already 30. I, I meant to have started two years ago. And and uh, so I think, I don't think athletes are alone in, in, um, in not considering that issue. But I think the elite athletes in particular are in a situation where their bodies have never let them down before. And, and sometimes when I see women who've been, uh, you know, particularly successful in sport, uh, it could be the first time that their body has not been able to do what they wanted it to do. So it does come as a bit of a surprise. But the, and, and, yeah, I think you were sort of mentioning, Emily, that, that you know, peak performance for women athletically. I mean, when, when do you find that occurs with, with bodybuilding? Is that sort of early 30s? It, it, does, it does vary. We have yeah. a number of young athletes who are exceptional and have earned their pro card. And then we have other athletes. And a perfect example of that is who we discussed during our pod, last podcast, Rach White, who, you know, took a you know, eight years before she competed the first time and then another 10 years after that to earn her IFBB Pro card. And she would be considered, um, you know, arguably the best female physique in the country. And, you know, that's taken, it's a long time training mm. and done it in a very sustainable way. So it absolutely does vary. And not just physically, because I think for females, they might have a shorter lifespan in the sport for obvious reasons, but also psychologically and emotionally and spiritually, when you undertake such a strict routine, you know, month after month, year after year, eventually it's going to take its toll. So it comes down to not only the individual's physical strength, but also their psychological strength as well. Yeah. And I think, look, one of the things that I think our, uh, you know, athletes perhaps, but also women who are successful in all realms of life is that um, we probably need to be talking about fertility preservation a little bit more um, because that does buy a lot of options. Um, again, it's, it's, it's not a substitute for having your family at a younger age, but we, if there's no other alternative and you're willing to accept those risks, then uh, the potential risk of it not working ultimately, then, then, egg freezing is far better than delaying without egg freezing. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And we touched um, briefly on the use of uh, synthetic T3. Um, Another common substance that we see female athletes take are um, estrogen blockers or anti-estrogen supplements. And particularly those that are prescribed in 
or for the treatment of specific cancers, in particular breast cancer. Yeah. Um, is there any specific evidence or any um, potential consequences for females that choose to take those anti-estrogen drugs, whether it's for a short period of time or for an extended period of time? Yeah, there is, there is. And look, um, so uh, so most of these, so things like tamoxifen and and they belong to a class of medication called SERMS, S-E-R-M-S, which stands for Selective Estrogen Receptor Modulators. And the reason they're called that is they have different effects on different tissues in the body. And tamoxifen, for instance, um, will stimulate uh, the estrogen receptors in a woman's uterus. And what that, what that can lead to is thickening in the lining of the uterus, so thickening of the endometrium. And why that's important is that if you've uh, got unopposed thickening of your uterus without a, without a period to sort of uh, reset the lining, you are at risk of endometrial hyperplasia, so an overgrowth, an abnormal overgrowth in the lining and endometrial cancer as a result. So that's probably quite a concerning effect. Um, the east, the uh, tamoxifen also works a little bit like uh, Clomid, which is what a lot of people have sort of heard about, used as a uh, used as a used as a treatment to to help women get pregnant in some circumstances. So tamoxifen is a little bit similar in that it uh, it blocks estrogen at the level of the pituitary. So the pituitary gland, when it senses estrogen around, actually reduces its signalling. But what tamoxifen does is, uh, is blocks that. So as a result, women who take tamoxifen will have higher FSH levels and higher LH levels. So what that means is that they'll be stimulating their ovaries more aggressively, which will lead to development of multiple follicles within their ovaries, uh, sometimes ovarian cysts and, uh, and can lead to uh, you know multiple births and things like that if you're taking it in an uncontrolled way. Um, it seems to be that it increases bone strength tamoxifen, and that's one of the, the, the nice side effects that used that's used in medicine and one of the pros in terms of using it in uh, women who've had breast cancer. Um, so those are those are some of the effects the effects that it can have on women of childbearing age who are not menopausal. And we did touch briefly, Troy, if you do recall on our last podcast, um, the increasing use of Clomid that you're seeing athletes coming across over to you. Um, Chris, can you further elaborate on some of the side effects? I know we've touched on it briefly, but some of the side effects for a female who chooses to incorporate Clomid into her protocol. Yep. So very, very similar to the tamoxifen with a couple of, uh, with a couple of exceptions that it doesn't cause the thickening of the lining of the uterus it actually causes a thinning of the lining. And uh, we don't know, typically, we know a lot about Clomid used in over a short period of time. So women who try to get pregnant typically take it for about five days uh, in quite a controlled way. What we don't know, and we, and we know that the thinning of the lining of the uterus is a, is a build-up effect. So usually women use it one month, their lining's not too bad. Next month, their lining's not too bad. By the time you've used Clomid for four to six months, we always stop using it because the lining becomes so thin that that pregnancy is less likely rather than more likely once you've used it for that period of time. And that's talking about only using it for five days a month 
five days out of each month. So it's quite short. And we see that over the course of about four to six months. What we don't know is if you were using it long-term, does that cause thinning of the lining that reverses or is it thinning of the lining that's irreversible? Uh, and that would be my main concern with using Clomid over a long period of time, as well as the fact that, you know, if it does lead to ovulation, it can lead to ovulation of a high number of eggs. And if you ovulate with a high number of eggs and were to get pregnant, then the multiple birth rate is going to be quite high as a result of that. And obviously the associated risks and complications that come with having a, a multiple birth. A multiple exactly. Birth. Yeah. Yeah. And Another psychological effects of unwanted pregnancies. I mean, presumably yeah. women in that situation are not wanting to be pregnant. So that, that in itself is, uh, is really important. That's a really good point. And Chris, is there any recent research or studies um, that go into detail around the use of anabolic steroids, whether it's um, oral anavar or, or stenosol or um, injectable testosterone? Do we know what potential implications they may have to a female's reproductive endocrine system? We, we don't know on the basis of new studies. And the reason being, I guess, is just that those studies aren't being done. Mm. But what we can do is understand the, the, the effect that we know these things will have on the woman's hormone system and sort of extrapolate that. And um, that's probably the most useful way to go about it. And I think what we do know about using supplemental testosterone or other anabolic steroids is that once you get up to uh, a certain dose, which presumably if you're using those medications, you're using them at a dose that's going to have some sort of tissue effect. If it's having a tissue effect, it's going to have an effect on the pituitary gland. And what that will be is that the FSH and LH levels will shut down. So if you're stimulating testosterone receptors in the pituitary, your, your body realises that, that it's not the right time to be releasing an egg, so it shuts, that, it, shuts it down. Going back, um, we sort of talked earlier about whether um, long-term training and suppression of your pituitary gland will lead to irreversible damage of the pituitary gland. And I think that's the concern with being on, on androgens is that uh, if you're stimulating, if you're blocking your, your pituitary from releasing those hormones for long enough, does that cause irreversible damage? And I think it probably does in some circumstances, but you know, probably not all. And it probably depends on dosages and length of duration of, of treatment and all those sorts of things. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd be concerned about that. Um, in terms of the, an effect on the ovarian reserve and the ovaries themselves, I don't think there is uh, much effect. So I don't think it's going to uh, destroy egg numbers or anything like that. It's merely that spon spontaneous ovulation may not occur and therefore you need you know, injections of FSH and, and, and HCG to induce ovulation or you need IVF or something along those lines. The uh, interesting thing is... Um, so transgender men, so men who, uh, who use testosterone to masculinize, but they have ovaries, um, we know that sometimes they would like to have a family and use their eggs to conceive a pregnancy. And a lot of the time, uh, so hard to give exact numbers, but um, that's probably, and this is probably in men who use testosterone over a long period of time, 
Um, I'd imagine at much higher doses than female athletes would be using. And over the course of years, often they do spontaneously ovulate afterwards. And if they don't spontaneously ovulate, usually we can induce ovulation with injections. So for an athlete that might be doing, um, and competition preps vary, that can be 12, 16, 20, 30 odd weeks. If we have a female athlete that is either taking performance enhancing drugs or some sort of anti-estrogen supplementation or, or T3, whatever it may be, how does she keep, how does she know or how does she keep up to date with how her reproductive health is tracking? How often should she be getting a blood test done or how often should she be seeing her gynecologist or at the very yeah. least a general practitioner? I think I'd, I'd be, I'd recommend doing it before you take any of those medications because you really need to know what is your starting point. Whilst you're using those, those, those drugs, there's, there's no, you just cannot assess things because uh, all of those hormone levels we mentioned, um, we, sort of, we sort of spoke about AMH. I would suspect that AMH levels are going to be altered by the, those, those drugs. So um, androgens and anabolic steroids will probably reduce the AMH level. Um, so I think whilst taking them, no point doing that. The other ways that we uh, assess ovarian reserve and egg numbers, I don't think we talked about earlier, but one of the ways we do that is to measure FSH levels uh, on, day, on, on day three of the woman's menstrual period. And the reason we do that is because it's a nice standardised time in the cycle where we get predictable and reproducible results. And what we're looking at is, is what's the FSH level. And if the FSH level is in the normal range, we think that egg numbers are okay. If it's in an elevated, we think that egg numbers are low. And if the FSH level is really low, that means the pituitary gland is suppressed for some reason. Um, so we, we would be unable to do that test on, on a woman in that situation if she's not having a cycle, which I would usually expect amenorrhea or no period to be a side effect of those medications. So we lose the ability to do that. Um, the other way we assess ovarian reserve is to do an ultrasound and actually look at the ovaries, uh, the woman's ovaries on ultrasound and see how many follicles are growing within. Again, that's probably the most useful in this situation. But again, we know that women who are on the contraceptive pill, they have lower follicle numbers on ultrasound that eventually bounces back and is completely normal afterwards. But it just means as a measuring tool at the time of being on that medication, we know it's not reliable. So therefore by extension, I would think it's not going to be reliable when you, you're taking androgens as well. So I think, you know, I, I would definitely be, uh, be assessing it before. Uh, and I think if you wanted to have another assessment, you'd have to leave it at least three or four months after not being on any of those medications at all. Uh, before you can get another meaningful assessment. That's some really great advice for our listeners. I think as women, we often um, don't pay enough attention to our own overall health and well-being, let alone our, our reproductive and our endocrine health. Uh, so it's some really good points there for female athletes who might be using performance-enhancing drugs or taking any sort of hormone supplementation that, one, check your levels before you start any protocol and number two, leave enough time post um, your cycle to see um, what that blood work or that ultrasound might look like. Yep. Uh, I might move quickly or touch briefly in 
on infertility. And I know it's such a, a broad definition. Yeah. Um, but how would a specialist like yourself, um, I guess, define infertility? And what are some of the options available to women who may be facing infertility? Yeah. So, look, um, I, I guess I, I tend to use subfertility a little bit more than infertility because, yeah, I think that's probably a, a, a truer a true indication of what's going on. So I think, you know, infertility is someone who cannot have a baby, whereas most of the patients I see are unable to have a baby in a time frame that they've desired. So I think that's, that's the way I, I sort of think about it. And the subfertility is whatever the patient defines. And I think that's, that's really important because you sometimes see doctors and they might, you might come to them as a 35 year old woman and they look up the textbook definition and they say, Oh, infertility is two years of trying to have a baby, go back home and keep trying. And that may not always be the right advice. Um, so I, I prefer to take an interest in a woman or a couple's uh, reproductive health when they've, as they define it. So if, but um, in terms of when I would recommend it, I think um, if a woman's less than 35, uh, if she's less than 30 and has been trying for a year without a pregnancy, I think that's the time to be assessed. Uh, 30 to 35, you know, probably six to nine months. Over 35, probably no more than six months. If you're over 40, I'd be seeing a fertility specialist straight away before you even start. Uh, because you know, once once you're 40, your your most your most the month that you are most likely to ever get pregnant is this month, and uh, and waiting a few months can can make a difference. And what you want to do is use your your best month, which is now, uh, on on a strategy that's going to maximise your chances. So you really need to get in very early uh, in that situation. But going back to your original question, what is it? So uh, I, I think if, if a patient's unhappy that they haven't conceived in the timeline that, uh, that they desire, that's the right time to get an opinion. Um, the other right time is if you think something's wrong. So perhaps if, you've, uh, if your period's not regular, if you get period pain, which can indicate endometriosis, that might mean you're going to have a, a harder time getting pregnant and you probably should get seen sooner rather than later. Um, for men, you know, I, I guess if you've got men who've used, um, who've used exogenous testosterone before, we, we need to know pretty quickly, that's a risk factor for not having, not, not producing sperm. So we need to be doing a sperm test sooner rather than later. So that's a bit of a warning sign that, that you should get in a little bit sooner as well. And I think it's really important, no, sorry, sorry um, that, because often, uh, and I see it time and time again, is that uh, subfertility is seen as a female problem or as a woman's problem, um, even in, in marriages and in partnerships, uh, it's sometimes seen that way. And, um, and it's really important to investigate and assess as a couple rather than as individuals. That's a really great point. And it's something that I alluded to a little bit earlier when my partner and I first went to see our general practitioner for a referral. 
And when I received my blood results back and ultrasound results, I, I started blaming myself. I started blaming, yeah. number one, I've waited too long. Number two, I competed for too long. Number three, I've dieted and exercised for too long. And then again, turning to Dr. Google and Dr. Google was telling me that I have no chance. I'm going to have to start IVF. So I came into your office that day with my big folder with all these screenshots and tests and copies of my all my um, naturopath appointments and all my acupuncture appointments. And it was so comforting to sit down with someone who is a specialist in their field and basically go back to basics and, um, you know, give us a bit of confidence that it's going to be okay. It's not going to be as easy as what we thought it was going to be. But until we do some further investigation, there's no need to even discuss more drastic measures. And, that created a lot of awareness for me that for so long I engaged an accountant for tax advice. I engaged my financial planner for investment advice. I have a brilliant solicitor for my legal advice, but as a woman, I didn't have a specialist to look after my reproductive health. And that was being, being quite negligent. I think we all as women, regardless of what age, when we start to have pap smears, we should probably build a relationship at the very least with a, with a gynecologist, uh, and especially when we, even if we head towards that reproductive age and family planning and post planning, it's so important to find someone that you can trust. Um, and for me, someone I didn't have to go back and forth. So having confidence in yourself that is a gynecologist, an obstetrician, a fertility specialist, someone who has a special interest in um, you know, sports and gynecological issues associated with, with sports women, doing that bit of research has given me a lot of confidence now. Uh, you know, as intimidating as it was at the start, here I am disclosing what I've done in the past and what damage I could have been done. You know, we've had some pretty open and transparent conversations now and I'm quite a stubborn person and very persistent. And um, But, you know, to remind our listeners that it's never too early to start building a relationship or finding a specialist that you trust that can take care of your reproductive health and that's going to be there for you on that journey as you, you know, potentially transition into family planning and parenthood post that. Yeah. And I think um, it's probably something that doesn't happen a lot. I, I must admit, I don't see a lot of, um, I don't see a lot of patients who come at say age 25 and say, oh, I just want a, a gynecologist who can oversee things for me. It's not something that commonly happens. I think it probably happens in general practice a lot more. So I think people do engage with their GPs. And I think good GPs are very good at, uh, at looking at a young woman uh, broadly, not just looking at the, the issue that's sitting before them, but sort also sort of saying, oh, so, you know, are you in a relationship? What are you doing for contraception? And have you had your pap smear yet? And what, what's your cycle like? So I think the good GPs uh, are doing that. Um, the, the problem is, and I don't want to speak ill of my colleagues, but we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And uh, there are many things you should never consult me about uh, in the world of medicine. But some, some GPs um, aren't confident having those discussions or they don't have the background that allows them to have it. Like I mentioned earlier, I, I, I have my, I, I hear stories at least every week with women told you'll never have a baby because of endometriosis. 
usually that's coming from from a well-meaning GP, I think. Um, it, it's look, it's it's equally possible that that messages have been misinterpreted, and you know, oh, you might have difficulty having a baby, and has been interpreted as you'll never have a baby. Um, that probably happens rather a lot. Um, similarly, with polycystic ovary syndrome, um, it's it's overdiagnosed in uh, in general. It's definitely overdiagnosed in young women, and when I say young women, you know, less than twenty three or twenty four, you really should be you know, questioning the diagnosis in women of that age. Um, and again, there's all the, the, the negative uh, stigmas that come from that. And if you add in um, potentially some bad advice and look, you, you, you're sort of mentioning Googling before, Emily, and I think Googling's fine, but you've probably got to have a good bullshit meter when you're on Google. You've got to know what, what sounds legitimate and what doesn't. And yeah, perhaps that's what the role of a really good GP with an with an interest in women's health, uh, or a gynaecologist or fertility specialist—that's what the role is—is is that I think we are really good at helping you sort through those things. And I think I don't know. Maybe it's because I like it. Maybe it's because I work in it all the time. But I find fertility really easy. Uh, just makes sense in my mind. Um, it's not a complicated thing. I was just interested when you said, uh, you know, that, that, that we went back to basics, um, when we met and that's because fertility is basic. It's, it's eggs. Do you have eggs? Are you ovulating? Do you have sperm? What's the sperm like? Do you have a uterus? Are your fallopian tubes blocked? That there's not much more to it than that. Um, so sometimes, uh, the skill in someone who's good in this area is to take something that's relatively complicated and distill it into something that is very simple. And I think, you know, for a metaphor for that is that's probably what a good coach does as well um, in sport. Absolutely. Okay, uh, if I have a look at the, you know, before meeting with you um, that afternoon, I was spending... $270 a week on acupuncture sessions. I was spending $120 a week on fertility massages, another $180 to see a naturopath because in my mind I had to do everything that was available to me in order to have the best possible outcome. And it was taking so much toll on me physically, psychologically, financially as well because you will do anything when you set your mind on wanting to have a family and to your point earlier, when you've had such success in your professional career and your sporting career, you just assume that that success will flow through to family planning. I mean, how difficult could it possibly be? Yeah. Um, but it was, it was comforting and definitely provided us with reassurance that it doesn't necessarily have to be that complicated. Let's just start back at the, the starting line and work through this as if we don't have the, all this information and let's just you know, build step by step don't necessarily assume worst case. And you know, if we need to change the plan along the way, that's when we'll change the plan. Let's not start with the most drastic measure. Let's just take it as it, take it, as it comes. Yeah. And I think if you like a lot of things in life, if you do the simple things really, really well, um, that's where you get most of your, most of your success. Um, it's interesting though, and, and I see this, in a lot of patients because the way human beings think we're always looking for reasons. We're always looking for cause and effect. 
but sometimes we completely underestimate how random the world is and uh, that I see a lot of couples who, and particularly with, with miscarriages where um, their experience, their personal experience is that I've had, I've been pregnant twice or three times and every single time I've had a, I've had a miscarriage that must mean therefore that my chance of miscarriage in the future is hundred percent. And that's because that's what their lived experience has been. Um, the reality is the vast majority of the time is that it's been three random events in a row. Uh, just like you can go to the casino and lose on the roulette table three times in a row quite easily. You can also have, uh, have bad outcomes with pregnancies three times in a row also. And I think as, as human beings, we sometimes have trouble uh, grappling with that. We think there must be a reason. If medically there's nothing wrong, well, maybe I'm doing something wrong. And uh, that's usually the assumption in, in the patients I see, that they are doing something wrong that has led to the miscarriage that I trained too hard five years ago or I didn't train yesterday or I ate badly last week or I had a glass of wine last night. All these things that, that are, are probably unrelated. Um, and, and that's why it's so important to help patients understand that but also to distill it and simplify it into the things that really are important and to exclude those things that are less important. What are some of the things that do influence miscarriages? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing is uh, the quality of the embryo. So the embryo is what we uh, call the pregnancy once the, once it is formed from a sperm and an egg. So, what the embryo inherits from the sperm and the egg is, is genetic material. So it inherits the DNA that, that encodes the, the proteins that tell our body how to develop and how to work. And usually, um, usually miscarriages occur as a result of imperfections in the makeup of the DNA. And it's nothing that you have control over a lot of the time, although there are some situations where there are clearly things that people are doing that increase the chance of miscarriage. And those are generally lifestyle factors uh, such as poor diet, uh, smoking, absolutely uh, being overweight and unhealthy. Generally all of those things uh, can, can impact uh, the chance of pregnancy and, and the chance of miscarriage. But having said that at the end of the day, the quality of the genetic material in the eggs and the sperm are the most important factor and uh, you can easily just get pregnant with the wrong ones on that one occasion and that leads to a miscarriage. It's very unusual um, that I find something that's clearly wrong that needs to be fixed and I think uh, you know the, the, the figures I tell patients is that if you've had three miscarriages in a row the chance of us me through doing all the investigations I can possibly think of, the chance of me finding something medically and defined as wrong is probably about 1%. Mm. And we do, and I sort of say to them, that doesn't mean we shouldn't investigate. It just means you need to be prepared for the fact that we may not find a silver bullet here. And if we do, it'll be incredibly important to your future chances of having a baby because then it's a, it's game changing that 
you know, if we find a, a thrombophilia or if we find a chromosomal issue, we then know what we have to do to go ahead and fix it. So it is really important to find them, but you can't always pin your, your hopes on finding a problem. And again, where, where a pattern identifying species and uh, you have three miscarriages and you think, oh, well, there must be something wrong. There must be something, test everything, but uh, it's actually quite uncommon to find something. Mm. Troy, can I throw a question out to you? Um, you've obviously got a number of female athletes now that you are providing guidance through, um, and many of those who have quite open with their journey, with their transition over to you as a coach, and you've had to do a lot of, um, I guess, undoing of some pretty drastic protocols and, and damage. What are some of the, um, I guess, what are some of the real issues that you're seeing or being faced with that our female athletes potentially taking or abusing and you're obviously having to do a lot of work to either transition them to be a natural athlete or to reduce the amount of performance enhancing drugs or substances that they're taking? I think the first thing to really look at or that I look at is probably the psychological impact, the belief or need that certain compounds or substances are needed in order to achieve a result. So, you know, as we touched on before, talking about, you know, T3 usage, is it something that is needed? Do I have to use it? Is it going to be beneficial? What type of result is it going to give me an edge? So I think a lot of these ladies are looking at, you know, getting the edge. Is, am I going to get the ultimate result with this? And I think a lot of people are probably sold on that idea from a coaching point of view. So my job is really just to communicate with these girls and say, hey, listen, you, know, you can actually get really good results. And if anything, you can probably get better results probably without T3. So it's really communicating with, uh, with the athletes, educating them on the subject and work, working through some things and talking about just general logic and their performance and how they felt. I mean, we probably didn't touch on, you know, some of the side effects of T3 usage in terms of how you feel, your energy levels, your appetite, you know, your drive and motivation. A lot of people are probably more lethargic, especially when they do go on higher dosages. So it's, it's really about educating these ladies and letting them know that, you know, sometimes looking at the short term isn't necessarily long term and sometimes even the short term isn't beneficial either. So it's, it's an ongoing challenge. And I think more people need to be obviously discussing this and coaches need to be practicing really good protocols. And I think the first thing is, is to say, hey, listen, go get some blood work done. Let's, let's see where your levels are at. And most of the time, ladies that have been using for an extended period of time, you know, their ALTs through the roof also for the listeners, like maybe liver and kidney enzymes, that type of thing. And it's most of the time ladies aren't even getting blood work done or they're not seeing a specialist or they haven't even gone to see a general practitioner. So I think it's really important to have first have the discussion and be transparent. So you mentioned before with Dr. Chris that you were very transparent in everything that you, you were doing. And obviously you had a very open discussion about this is what I want. This is what I'm obviously having an issue with, you know, can I get there? And I think a lot of people probably skip that step. Um, and I also wanted to ask you, you know, you, you spoke about the different treatments that you went through, like your, your um, acupuncture, et cetera. At what point did you think to yourself, I don't think this is working for me. And when did you <laughs> discover Chris? Look, I'm, um, I was referred to Dr. Chris by our general practitioner. In fact, she gave me a list of a number of fertility specialists and she knew me quite well. She'd, we'd been seeing her for quite some time and she knew that I would do my research. Um, so based on you know Chris's credentials and the testimonials that I had read, I made an appointment um, to see him. And 
I, at that stage, was continuing with, with acupuncture and seeing the naturopath um, and taking all the different supplementation, all the different herbs and so forth. And after our second miscarriage, um, we did some uh, genetic testing, which came back with a, a chromosomal abnormality. I asked, I asked Chris, you know, is it even worth it anymore? And I think at that stage I started to realise, and because I was so become so involved in the, the whole process and I was doing my own research, I, I started to realise that there's a lot more to reproductive health. And in particular, if you do have an issue with fertility, then drinking a, a potion or getting a few needles stuck into you. And each to their own. You know, if it provides you with a placebo effect, absolutely. If it provides you with the support and comfort you need, I'm not saying do not do it. I just found for me, after many years of, paying for these particular treatments, I was not getting the results that I was expected to get, that I expected to get. Well, I stopped um, everything except for my appointments with Chris and the guidance that he provided me, including the regular testing of my hormone because I do have an underactive high thyroid and, and Hashimoto, so we had to regular, regularly test that by blood work. And in fact, when we fell pregnant with Frankie, which was my fourth pregnancy, I was overseas and the only thing that I was taking was my, my T4 for my, for my hormone, for my thyroid issue. So I, I think everyone is different. Um, when I engage in a specialist, just like I did the years that I was competing and engaged Andy, I do whatever they tell me to do. I'm so set and focused on achieving the ultimate outcome. And this, in this case, it was to have a healthy pregnancy and the birth of a healthy child that whatever Chris had suggested to me, I was completely compliant. And I'm not saying that people who do choose to have acupuncture or do choose to see a naturopath or take specific supplementations and so forth won't have a successful pregnancy. That's, you know, clearly they do. But for me, I wasn't seeing the outcomes that I had expected to see um, those years before I, I started trying these different, um, I guess, these different methods. Right. Chris, going back to you for a second, um, you know, talking about fertility treatment options. So what are the most common options for ladies that are uh, finding it difficult to get pregnant? And is that obviously something that you would diagnose them on and then say, look, maybe this is the first thing that we do. And then you go on to subsequent treatments. How does your protocol work? Yeah. So generally the first thing we ever do is, is assess things as thoroughly as we can. And that uh, sort of goes back to those basics things that I mentioned earlier which are, do you have eggs? Uh, are you ovulating? What's the egg numbers like? Because, uh, and the egg numbers is really important because what that tells us in combination with the woman's age is how much time have we got uh, to continue on less invasive but less successful methods. So if you consider that the, the, out of all the treatments I could possibly offer, the least successful is trying naturally so just you know, natural attempts at pregnancy and the most successful is IVF. You've got to think, well, when do we transition? When, when's the need to transition to more advanced treatments? And you know, if you're 21 years old and your ovarian reserve is excellent, we don't, we don't need to be considering IVF at that stage. We've got you know, potentially years of trying naturally before we need to consider those things. Whereas if you're 40, we don't have as much time at all. So, uh, or if you're indeed, you know, 35, 36, 37 with reduced egg numbers, 
we probably don't want to spend as much time on less successful methods before we progress to more advanced. So uh, that, that's why assessing ovarian reserve is, is really important. Uh, so we always assess that together with ovulation. We always test the sperm quality in the man because uh, again, that's, uh, we might find that the man's sperm quality is either incapable of uh, leading to a natural pregnancy or it's at such a low chance of success that we really need other treatments. So we always assess that. We always assess the condition of the woman's uterus. Uh, does it have any structural issues? Are there any growths? Are there any tumours like fibroids? Do we need to fix those things to increase natural pregnancy rates? And uh, the other important thing is checking her fallopian tubes for potential blockages. Because if there's blockages there, you can have the best sperm and the best eggs. If they can't find each other, a pregnancy is never going to occur. So we always do that assessment first. And uh, if everything's looking normal, then uh, we, I always talk to my patients about the various options, which are, so trying naturally, uh, trying naturally, but and then the next step of, uh, beyond that is sort of trying naturally, but with some degree of help, either improving the timing of ovulation or at least knowing when ovulation is occurring with some precision. And the way we do that is we use some ultrasounds to track the woman's ovaries, sometimes HCG injections to get the precise timing of the ovulation correct. Um, that would be a common first step. Things that you can sort of bolt onto that uh, that increase the chances are intrauterine insemination. So that's where we get a man's sperm, we process it in a laboratory, get rid of all the crap in it that we don't need and just get a very small volume of highly concentrated sperm and that then goes straight into the woman's uterus. That's called IUI or intrauterine insemination and that increases the pregnancy rates a little bit again. Following on from that, uh, we sometimes consider laparoscopy as a treatment and the reason we consider that as a treatment is we can, uh, like I mentioned earlier, some of the time we find endometriosis, uh, about 30% of the time in, the, in, in women who are having difficulties getting pregnant. And if we remove it uh, surgically, they are more likely to get pregnant in the months that follow. So that would be one treatment that's possible. Uh, we, we can flush the woman's tubes with, uh, with saline, so uh, with fluids. So that, that uh, opens up the tubes and whether that clears micro blockages or not, we don't really know because when we do that test, if the fluid goes through, well, we say, oh, well, your tubes aren't blocked. Whether they were blocked before, we don't know, but that clears things out and we see more pregnancies afterwards. Um, so they are sort of the less invasive treatments. And then we always have IVF up our back pocket, which uh, is a process where we uh, take control of the woman's ovaries with hormones. So we give her FSH injections, which is one of those hormones we were mentioning before. We get her to grow lots of eggs all at once. Uh, we take those eggs out of her ovaries and then uh, in an IVF laboratory, put the sperm and the egg together, grow the embryos for a few days, and then put one of those embryos back in. And um, what I talk to every single patient about is what are the potential chances of success with each of those treatments? And what are the advantages, what are the disadvantages? Um, and it's very unusual that I would sit down with a patient and say, you must do this. 
Um, it's unusual. The time where that would happen would be if it's blocked fallopian tubes uh, and, and pregnancy was not going to be possible, then I would say you really need IVF. There's not really much choice here. Or if the man has really low sperm, uh, really poor quality sperm, really low sperm counts, really abnormal sperm, and that's a consistent thing we see, it might be that I say, yeah, you really need IVF because we've got to inject the sperm straight into the egg. The sperm has no chance of naturally fertilizing the egg. We've got to inject it in. So it is actually quite unusual that I would be that uh, prescriptive with a patient. It's more that, and, and this is my style. This is not everyone else's style. Everyone's going to be a little bit different, but I like to allow patients to make the decisions themselves. And it's probably a harder way to practice because it does require a lot more explaining um, because the patients, as well as just saying, oh, I like that option, it's also got to be understanding the consequence of taking that step. So if you've got a woman who's 38 and I said, look, you're, you've been trying for two years to achieve a pregnancy, your chance of a natural pregnancy is 1% per month. Um, if we do IVF, it's, it's 30 or 40%. If she decides that, oh, well, I'm going to keep trying naturally because there is a chance, I have no problem with that personally. The problem with that is by taking one path, you're, you're, you're also losing out by not taking the alternative path. So if, if by taking that path, it means you delay IVF by one year, well, in one year, it's not 30 or 40% anymore. It's 20 to 25. So there are consequences of, uh, of all decisions. So it is quite a lengthy discussion we have to end up having um, with patients so that they fully understand what their options are and what they can do. For so many of our athletes, Chris, they um, are very compliant with a strict diet, a, a quite a healthy diet, um, yeah. filled with great um, essential fats and proteins and carbohydrates. Is there research um, and studies that suggest the importance of having a healthy, well-balanced diet and it's linked to fertility or infertility if it's in fact a poor, poor diet? There's, there's lots of little, there's lot of, lots of little threads flying around. There's no sort of uh, big study looking at hundreds of women on a particular diet. And I think that's probably a weakness in all uh, aspects of research on diet. You, you, it's very hard to get um, specific answers about eating patterns and things like that. So instead we can sort of pick little threads and I must admit I'm a little bit biased towards a certain type of eating and uh, a lot of the threads that I'm finding are sort of pushing me further in that direction. And generally we find that, that, that uh, high sugar diets are, are not good for fertility. And the, it, it's, a, it's a couple of, uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. I, I have no doubt that that'll increase, uh, that'll make weight gain more likely. Um, and, but it's also a hormonal effect because if you are taking sugar, you're going to have elevated insulin levels um, as a result. And we know that high levels of insulin and insulin resistance are going to have an effect on follicular development and ovulation. So when you put all those sorts of things together, I think we can draw a conclusion that that's probably not good for you. Um, so all of my patients, I talk about uh, reducing sugar intake and uh, by extension also reducing the impact the uh, the intake of uh, simple carbohydrates so i am more a fan of uh, um, of um, of more healthy fats and more proteins 
um, in diet. And I think that is, is probably supported in all the threads of research we see, but there's no one big study saying that that eating pattern is, is better than anything else. And in terms of, I know that there's also some, um, some pretty strict advice around women who may have polycystic ovaries and a diet that is prescribed to them. Is that again, very um, much tailored towards the limitation of consumption of sugars or refined sugars? Absolutely. And I think probably study of PCOS is where we have the most data because it's a common condition. It has lots of health uh, implications beyond fertility as well. Um, so as a result, it is, it is more studied. So yes, yeah, certainly we're seeing that in, in PCOS for sure. And in fact, and you know, PCOS is probably one condition where lifestyle issues probably have the biggest impact on, on uh, fertility. Um, and there are lots of studies that have shown that, you know, in women who are overweight with PCOS, that if they lose as little as 5% of their, of their weight, they can go from not ovulating to ovulating, um, which, you know, 5% is a relatively small amount. And to go from completely anovulatory and not ovulating and unable to conceive to having a chance of conceiving is a huge thing. Mm. We've spoken a lot about um, female fertility and, and female infertility. And I, I guess that associates with the fact that when um, a, a, you know, a, a couple are challenged with falling pregnant or having a, a healthy pregnancy, it's automatically assumed that the issue lies with the, with the female. Um, there's obviously issues associated with, with male infertility. Is, something, is that something that you treat and would you take the same approach in terms of diagnosis and treatment for, for a male who might be experiencing fertility issues? Yep, for sure. And the, uh, the interesting thing about, uh, you know, assessing women versus assessing men, we're a little bit limited with the ways that we can assess a man's fertility. And so as a result, they are relatively easy to investigate. You do a sperm test and then you interpret the results. And we, we then sort of, you know, in the, uh, in the fertility situation, that's, that's often as far as it goes, unless we get negative results, in which case we do start looking at things um, in, in detail. And sort of the things we again look at are very similar to the things we would look at in a woman. We look at thyroid function. We look at prolactin levels. Uh, we look at uh, genetics. We look at uh, their chromosomes. We look at uh, hormone levels. We look at their free testosterone because as well as making sperm, the other function of testicles is to release testosterone. So we want to know what, the, uh, what that functioning is like um, because if we've got poor sperm production and we've got poor testosterone production, that's a, that's, uh, that has other health implications for the man as well. So we still do investigate as thoroughly, thoroughly as we can. And um, because like, you know, like I mentioned, I think it's really important to investigate the couple as a couple. Um, one third of uh, fertility couples, we identify a male factor alone. So just a problem with a man, nothing with a woman at all. About a third of the time we find an issue with both. So therefore, you know, we're finding male factor a lot of the time. Um, it is, you know, it is, it is relatively treatable as well. Usually, again, it's diet and lifestyle. Um, we, we, we see massive variation in the quality of a man's sperm from month to month and week to week. And 
probably that's the big take home message in terms of assessing men's fertility is never trust one semen analysis. If it's really bad, just wait, fix your, fix your lifestyle issues, stop smoking, stop, stop drinking and absolutely exercise. There's really, really good evidence that uh, exercise, particularly weight training for men is beneficial to sperm parameters. There's no evidence that that leads to more babies just mostly because that study hasn't been done, but certainly sperm parameters have no ceiling in terms of men's training. Um, the one area of training for men that's probably uh, detrimental is cycling because of overheating of the testicles. So basically anything else is beneficial. Interestingly, we didn't talk about this yet, but uh, looking at uh, couples trying to conceive and plotting that against uh, the amount of exercise done by women, it does seem that women can over-exercise, whereas men don't seem to. So um, you could have men training as much as they like and things will get better. Women seem to plateau out at about two to four hours of exercise per week. And then you see start seeing uh, a drop off in fertility rates. It's not that exercising beyond that point is worse than not exercising at all. There probably is still some benefit, but you still, you, you do see it fall away once you're over two to four hours. Um, in women who are, or is it specific to the type of it's very wishy the, the studies are very very wishy-washy and they they talk about uh strenuous versus non-strenuous which is really not very well defined in the studies um so i don't think you can take much out of the type of exercise um in to inform yourself of that um interestingly women who are overweight so bmi over 25 they don't seem to see, see that drop off in benefit. So the, it seems to be the more they, they exercise, the better they get. Um, so that's quite interesting. Whether this is all an ovulation effect, again, the studies don't tell us that. Is it because once you are exercising over four hours per week and your BMI is not over 25, in that group is there going to be quite an overrepresentation of women who are what we call hypo hypo so you know not getting periods because of over exercise it could be that um, it's not quite strong enough um, a recommendation for me to tell women who are ovulating to cut down their training but women who are not ovulating well we were kind of there already knowing that if they want to ovulate spontaneously that's the only method they've that's that that's what they need to do so we're kind of there already for those women um, but going back to men, uh, I think we were saying, you know, there seems to, there seems to be no uh, limitation to the amount of exercise they do to improve, um, to improve their, their sperm parameters. Interestingly, men, men blame themselves as much as women, which is really interesting. And uh, they just don't talk about it as much. The thing, the way it really does manifest itself, which I find very interesting, um, you know, when I see a woman, there's lots of things we need to test. We need to do an ultrasound. We need to do hormone levels and day three of a period. We need to do one week before a period, do some hormone levels. We might need to do a laparoscopy. We've got all these things we're doing. And men have one test and one test only, and that's a sperm test result. Women can wait until their next appointment to get the results. They're very patient. But we get so many phone calls from men saying, I need the results. I can't wait till next week. Yeah. It's uh, it's like a, a test of manhood to uh, to see what these uh, these sperm test results. 
which of course, you know, I, I, I always tell them it's not that. It's, uh, it's, um, it's not a test of your manhood, just as I tell my, uh, my female patients that, you know, because women do define themselves as well by their ability to have children. Um, so it's, it's funny that uh, men and women are so similar yet so different at the same time. We've touched on training, and I think it's it's quite interesting. You know, you've suggested those studies, and if we have a look, and we've discussed it earlier on in the podcast. You know, we know that excessive exercise can have a potential disruption to the menstrual cycle because of the stress yeah. that can be placed under. How? Um, what would your advice be to a female who is pregnant um, or someone who may have recently given birth? who has always been quite physically active prior to the pregnancy. Are there any restrictions around her continuing her routine during that pregnancy? And what would a transition into training look like post the pregnancy? Yeah. So during pregnancy, I, I, there are very few interventions during pregnancy that can be more beneficial than exercise. Mm -hmm. So um, outcomes in almost all measure, all measures of pregnancy outcomes, I haven't seen anything that's not better when the woman has exercised. So I think uh, the role of exercise during pregnancy cannot be, cannot be, uh, cannot be overestimated. Just trying to get my overs and unders right there. Um, so I would then, so I, I tell all women exercise during pregnancy. That's the first thing. The second thing is how do you go about it? And I think women who are exercise naive obviously aren't going to go out and start uh, training excessively. They've got to gradually introduce things. So I, um, and, and the, the most benefit you'll ever get out of exercise is going from no exercise at all to doing something, mm. to doing anything at all. You're going to get the most benefit from doing that. So whether that's walking, I normally just say to patients, walking is very safe during pregnancy, uh, gradually increase the intensity what you really want to be doing is when you're finished, you want to be hot, you want to be sweaty, you want to be puffed out. That means you're getting some benefit out of it. If you're not, if you're not like that at the end, you've probably just gone for a stroll and you've wasted your time. The other thing I think uh, is completely safe and completely fine is, is yoga and Pilates and things like that. And uh, I think it's really good at increasing core strength for, for those women who've never done it before. And that reduces the amount of pain they experience during pregnancy. So back pain and hip pain are very common in the third trimester because of the increased laxity in joints uh, and the strains that that causes together with the increased weight, the increased abdominal weight, the changes in posture that are required. So therefore, if they can keep their core muscles stronger, I think that is certainly going to reduce their pain. So women who've never exercised before, those would be the things I'm telling them to doing. Women who, are, who have exercised in the lead up to pregnancy, I'm very happy for them to continue whatever they've been doing. Usually the advice I give them is that is though that during the first trimester, it's very normal to feel really tired. It's very normal to feel nauseated. It's very normal to not be eating normally. So keep those things in mind and, and accept that you're not going to be performing at the same level that you're used to. Mm. If you're feeling great, and you, you're not excessively tired and you're not feeling sick all the time, probably you'll be able to manage about 85% of your usual capacity. So whether that's based on time or intensity, probably on both, you can probably go about 85% in the first trimester. Um, and then 
you know, so I'm, I'm happy for, for women to continue what they're doing. There'll come a time in their pregnancy where certain activities become much harder. So I think the thing that will change is a lot more abdominal weight, a lot more abdominal weight is going to form and there's going to have to be a change of posture in the woman's back and hips to account for being quite front heavy. Um, and as I mentioned, the joint laxity means that you, uh, you probably have to limit things that put forces through one side of your body, but not the other. I do, I'll, I'll never forget one patient who said, Oh, I got some hip pain. She was 25 weeks. She used to exercise a little bit and she said, Oh, I had hip pain. So I got on the step machine and I, I did half an hour on the stepper. And I said, did that make it better or worse? And she goes, worse. I said, yeah, that's because, you know, that's, that's the opposite of probably what you want to be doing. Because, you know, by doing that, you're putting all the force through your right side then all the force through your left side. And that's probably not ideal. What you want is very balanced exercise at that stage of the pregnancy. So, so I guess initially it's going to be a reduction in the first trimester and then transitioning to the changes that you're experiencing in your body listening to your body, seeing how you recover. If you recover really well, then obviously what you're doing is right. If you're recovering badly and, and, and it's slow to recover, that's probably when you need to make alterations. And that transition post-birth, obviously very dependent on the type of birth that the woman has chosen to have or forced yeah. to have, whether it's natural, whether it's cesarean, and given their, I guess, their, um, the status of their fitness prior to delivery, is there a set rule or is it really an individual individualized approach? Yeah, I think it's completely individualized and, and, and that's often the issue I have with, uh, with other health professionals is that they're very cookie cutter in their approach. And I do have um, women who've had cesarean deliveries told, Oh, you must not do anything for six weeks, which, which I think is, is going to slow your recovery, not speed it up. Um, so that, that I, I wouldn't agree with that. I think it's, it's fine to gradually reintroduce exercise regardless of the type of delivery you've had. Um, in a lot of ways, the first baby you have, whether it's vaginal or cesarean is a slow recovery and it's always going to be a slow reintroduce, slow reintroduction of activities and a gradual reintroduction of activities. But I would expect people back doing most things, at uh, most everyday things at the you know, three to four week mark, gradually introducing exercise at the four to six week mark and um, basing it around how their bodies feel. If you feel great, do more. If you're not feeling great, back off a little bit. The difference though is probably with second baby. So uh, if you've had a vaginal delivery the first time and you have a vaginal delivery the second, the recovery is much quicker. And I think uh, as a result, reintroduction of activity in that situation is going to be a lot quicker as well. And How women have time to, uh, to exercise with a newborn, I don't know. That's, um, that's another story. That is a challenge. That is a challenge. Yeah. And for many um, athletes who have followed um, or are very compliant with their nutrition and training over the years and then fall pregnant, also tend to have quite a strict um, plan when it comes to supplementation or sports supplementation. Is there any recommendation as to what you can continue using safely and what you shouldn't be using during pregnancy or perhaps even during the stages of trying to fall pregnant? Um, what would be some advice around that? Yeah. What, what sort of supplements do you mean? 
Like, yeah, even simple things like, you know, protein powders, um, glutamine, carnitine. Um, yep. Yeah, all, all legal, all that you can purchase from a health food store or for a sporting yeah. supplement store. Yeah. Um, are there any in particular that we should steer clear of? No, I don't think so. And the reason being, if you, if you sort of consider what is the best uh, intake, what is the best diet in the lead up uh, to pregnancy, well, it's, it's sort of increasing your protein intake, reducing your carbohydrate and sugar intake. So I think if it fits in with that, there's, there's not really any problems. I think you've got to make sure you have adequate fat intake during pregnancy. Uh, I Again, you know, there are some dietitians who, who get worried about patients not consuming carbohydrates during pregnancy. And even patients who have diabetes during pregnancy are frequently told, you're not having enough carbohydrate, you need to eat bread, you need to eat rice, you need to eat pasta. And I'm thinking, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, why are you telling patients that you're making their disease worse, not better? So there is some some misinformation around diet, but I think generally you, you probably need a decent fat intake. You don't need a carbohydrate intake um, from simple carbohydrates. Obviously, vegetables are amazing. Um, and uh, I've forgotten where I'm going with this. <laughs> I think the the issue that we see, and I, I it's become more more common on um, you know Facebook posts um, with you know, mums club um, groups that are on social media, is that with most sporting supplements there is a disclaimer on there to say not recommended for breastfeeding or for women who are pregnant. And what a lot of um, females don't understand is that's because it would be completely unethical to test those products on pregnant or breastfeeding women. So they need to be safe and cover themselves legally and cover their brand. Um, and I know when I, with each of my pregnancies, I would send through a list of the sporting supplements that I was taking and, you know, just to get your okay, yep, no problem, we'll remove this. Um, for me personally, I had terrible morning sickness throughout the entire pregnancy. So the only way I could get protein in was through protein shakes and having a, a co-athlete actually deliver protein balls to me in the middle of the night because I was, that was the only thing I could keep down. Mm. So, um, you know, whilst there is a warning and there is a disclaimer on there, it's not to say that it's bad for you to consume it. It's just because legally they have to put it on packaging. Correct. And it's, it's often a liability issue. And I've got things, I mean, medications that I commonly prescribe to patients during pregnancy, it's very common to need to take aspirin during pregnancy. It has, uh, it has some, some great benefits in uh, specific populations or specific uh, conditions during pregnancy. And it, they all say on the packet, do not take while pregnant. And it's clearly a liability issue. Aspirin is incredibly well studied in, in pregnancy. We know it doesn't cause any effects on the baby. It doesn't increase abnormalities. We know it doesn't increase complications during pregnancies. And we know that it has some great benefits yet uh, it, it's printed all over it, do not take during pregnancy. So um, it's clearly a liability issue. I think as long as you know what's in a product and what the difficulty is, and, and I'm, I'm very happy for patients to send me the things they, they want to take for an opinion on what they are. And often I can give a very sensible answer, but often I can't as well. Uh, sometimes I get supplements and normally from usually from health food stores and naturopaths and it has a list of 50 ingredients and, you know, uh, 
I mean, I don't know what, I, I probably wouldn't know what three of them are. They're all these different plant roots and flower petals and things like that. I'm like, I, I can't possibly tell you anything about what's in this. I can't tell you it's safe. It's probably fine. Who knows? But um, so it can be very difficult answering those questions. But, you know, when it's something simple, like basically it contains protein, I think we can be confident that that's okay. Mm. Troy, can I ask you, just with um, the clients that you're currently working with, the female athletes, what would be the average age? And this would lead me into my final question with, with Chris. Yeah, the average age, I mean, I would say probably early 20s. Early 20s? Yeah, early, like, yeah, definitely. I would say that there's probably more competitors these days that are, you know, that are at least interested in competing at a very young age, 18, 19, 20, 21. And I would say that these ladies are also the most vulnerable in, in terms of, using things that they probably shouldn't and that don't have the education. So with that in mind, Chris, and we're very appreciative of your time, we're extremely fortunate for you have allocated your morning to talk with us today. Um, knowing that the majority of clients that um, Troy provides a coaching service to are typically between the ages of 18 to, to 23, 24, what would be the most single piece, most valuable piece of advice that you could give to them in terms of their reproductive health? I think the, I'm going to give two. How about that? I know you asked for one, but I think <laughs> one is, is don't do anything that's going to take away your options in the future. You want to keep yourself in the game. And even though at 18 or 21 or 24, you don't know what your family plans are really. Um, but what you don't want to do is take away the opportunity or take away the ability to make that decision in the future. That's probably the number one thing. And the other thing is to consider uh, the age at which you want to start your family. I think that's the advice for every single woman, not, uh, uh, not just who we were talking about, because that is the number one, uh, it's the number one factor that will, uh, that will allow you to achieve your desired family is starting at the right time. That's really great advice and very sensible. And often, what do we say about common sense? It's that it's not very common. We're so time poor these days. We have other priorities. And sometimes we just neglect to spend a little bit of time, refocus and reset to put in place um, what our plan looks like for ourselves and outside of finance and investment and career better own health and well-being both physiologically and, and, psych and psychologically as well. And your advice resonates so well with the message that I too told our listeners, you know, do not deny your future self an opportunity that you don't know right now you even want. Um, I was, you know, 30 not that long ago in a previous marriage and I was adamant that I did not want to have children I then went through a divorce, met the right partner, and all of a sudden I realised that I desperately wanted to have a family. So we don't know what we want in two, three, five, ten years' time, but we can certainly be, um, you know, give ourselves the best chance of ensuring that we actually don't rob ourselves or deny ourselves of any opportunity as the future approaches us. Absolutely. And as always, the, the best advice is not always the easiest to follow. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, thank you, Dr. Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Again, we, we acknowledge how busy you are and both with the, the clinic um, 
um, now operating. I believe that the restrictions have been lifted. So you're able to provide IVF services again to, um, to your patients, which is wonderful during these very testing times. Uh, and for our listeners, Dr. Chris is based here in Melbourne um, with consulting rooms out at the Atworth um, Freemasons in Melbourne. So for any listeners that may need some support and advice around gynecological issues, fertility issues, um, please feel free to reach out to either myself or to Troy. Um, and we'll also, if you don't mind, Chris, we might make available your direct contact details um, for your practice for our listeners if they want to contact you directly. No problem at all. And uh, look, thank you very much for the invitation. I've enjoyed talking about all this. So uh, um, I think in a previous life, uh, before I was working in this area, I, I thought I'd be an orthopedic surgeon or a sports physician. So this is my way of uh, being interested in, in athletes and, uh, and working with athletes is a way that I've managed to uh, have some sort of, um, have, have, have that as part of my practice. So I'm really pleased uh, you invited me and, and thanks. It's been our pleasure. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on, Dr. Chris. And I know this episode is certainly going to get a lot of attention with ladies asking a lot of questions and at the same time having a lot of questions answered. And there is more than likely going to be a number of ladies who will be interested in reaching out. So again, I really appreciate your time and thank you for coming on. Thanks, Troy. That's um, really great of you to say that and uh, hope to uh, meet some of the listeners one day. Great. So um, that'll do it, guys. Another episode done. If you have any questions about this podcast, please feel free to send me a DM on Instagram. For those who don't follow me, you can follow me at Troy J. Thornton. Dr. Chris, have you got an Instagram, by the way, or social media? I do. And one of the, I think the Instagram one is at Dr. Chris Russell underscore OBGYN. Okay, great. What we'll do is we'll post this. Uh, when we do post this uh, podcast, we'll obviously tag you. So that will be good for the listeners. They can uh, have a follow. And um, again, thank you for your time. So if, if anyone was listening, if you like this podcast, if you could please share it, it'd be greatly appreciated. And for the people out there that have any topics or questions on future episodes, please feel free to send me a DM. Until next time, thank you for listening, everyone. Peace.